0: So here's a question, to whom are you listening? I'm sure it's no surprise to you that we live in a world filled with voices and those voices aren't just out there on the internet or in some book or magazine waiting for us to go and listen to them. No, that's not the case. You and I both know that's not the world in which we live. Instead, information is flying at us like water out of a fire hose. So we're constantly bombarded by it, and it doesn't slow down, and it doesn't let up. And if we're honest, we know it's our own fault, because we willingly and joyfully open the floodgates through the infinite forms of technology, most of which we carry on our own person, so apps on our cell phones that we somehow have to look at constantly we allow this sea of voices to come pouring into our lives and filling our ears. So that at every waking moment, we have information, these voices at our fingertips speaking into our lives. And what I think we need help on is understanding and actually believing that this endless sea of information, these voices, are not neutral. Instead, most are unworthy, some are even wicked because they're telling us lies about the world in which we live and calling us to things that are destructive to our own souls because they bring words of temptation and distraction and compromise. So what we need to do is clean house, get rid of the noise so we can focus our thoughts and dial in the frequency of both our hearts and our minds to one voice. One voice who will speak truth into our lives that we know we need to hear so that we might live lives that bring glory and honor and praise to God alone. So, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. I know you're like, I thought we were in Exodus and Matthew, and now we're starting in Deuteronomy. This is not looking good. We are going to move quickly. This morning, uh, but we are going to go Deuteronomy, Exodus, all the way to Exodus 1, Exodus 40. Then we're going to go to Matthew 1, all the way to Matthew 28. I know. It's going to be great. That's what you're thinking. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Look at this. Moses is writing here. So Moses says this. Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. Like me, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him that you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Oreb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. If you remember, that's Exodus 19, when God descended on Mount Sinai. Verse 17, and the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you need not be afraid of him. So a few things here. Verse 15, he will be like you from among your brothers, so a prophet who will be like us in every way. Verse 18, God will put his words in his mouth that he may speak all that God has commanded. How will we know that he's the real deal, that he's the prophet from God? Verse 22 says, what he says will come true. It will come to pass. And then, last but not least, how should we respond? Verse 15. Very simply, we should listen to him. Because verse 19 says, whoever will not listen to him, God will require it of him. Which means God is going to hold us accountable to how we respond to this prophet. But what I want you to notice more than anything here in Deuteronomy 18 is Moses knows. Moses knows there's a prophet coming after him that is greater than him. And it's to him that we should listen because he's going to be God in the flesh. The Lord Jesus who speaks the word of God so that we might listen, repent of our sin, believe in his name, and live for his glory. Because he's the one to whom the entire Bible is pointing. So here's my goal. To review the book of Exodus following its contours, specifically focusing in on Moses. So that's number one, Moses and Exodus. And then highlighting how Exodus demonstrates in and of itself that Moses was never the ultimate prophet or the ultimate mediator. But always pointed forward to Jesus. Jesus. Then we're going to jump to the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to show you how Matthew specifically sets up his entire Gospel to demonstrate that Jesus is the greater than Moses, which will set us up well for next week and the Sermon on the Mount. But all of that will drive home this one question, to whom are you listening? And the right answer is Jesus. Because it's only in Jesus that we can experience the joy of salvation and live in a right relationship with God. So if you would, flip back to Exodus 1, page 45. I would encourage you to have your Bible open. Follow along as I roll. We're going to move quickly. You'll be surprised how quickly we move. Exodus 1, page 45. We'll look at Moses' life in Exodus. As you're flipping, let me remind you, Exodus starts how it starts. We know that Exodus is the continuation of Genesis where God made some pretty major promises that include great name, great nation, great blessing, and a great land. So in chapter one, as we kick off, we find the nation of Israel enslaved in Egypt and yet God's promises are unstoppable and the people are multiplying. But to save them out of Egypt, God raises up a deliverer, namely Moses. So number one, birth in the midst of a wicked king. Look at Exodus chapter one, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, verse 16, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So in the midst of this horrible, wicked situation, the killing of baby boys, Moses is born. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him Three months. Moses is born in the midst of a wicked king who is obviously trying to kill him. God protects him. Chapter two, God reveals himself to him. Chapter three, burning bush. And even prepares him. Chapter four, but protects and prepares him for what? To free God's people from their enslavement and take them all the way home Salvation in God's presence in the promised land. God raised up this mediator for that purpose, to save his people, to save them out of Egypt. That's number two. Flip forward with me to chapter 6, verse 6. God says to Moses, chapter 6, verse 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, God's telling Moses to speak to the people. So God is the, God is the one calling Moses to be the great prophet. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And we know from our time in Exodus that's exactly what God does. I mean, who can forget the ten plagues? Chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. God sends nine plagues on Egypt so that all the world might know that God is God and there is no other and that he is a God who makes distinctions between his people and the Egyptians. But Pharaoh still won't let God's people go. So God sends a 10th plague, the plague of death, killing the firstborn in all of Egypt. And the only way to be delivered is through the substitutionary sacrifice of the Passover lamb. That's chapters 11 and 12, whose blood is placed on the doorpost and lintel of every house so the death angel passes over and the people are saved. But now that takes place, why? To take the people out of Egypt. And how exactly does that happen? Well, number three. Through the waters of the Red Sea. So, 600,000 men, approximately 2 million people depart Egypt, but on their way out of town, Pharaoh changes his mind, pursues them all the way down to the Red Sea, where God puts an exclamation point on the fact that he is God and there is no other by literally dividing the Red Sea. So, God's people might live and Pharaoh's army might die. In fact, look at what Exodus 14 says verse 30 says, so flipping forward, we're making progress. Exodus 14, verse 30 says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What happens next? Well, great victories always result in great rejoicing. That's Exodus 15. But the question we have to ask, at least at this point in the narrative, is why did God save Israel? And the answer is so that they might serve him. So Moses told Pharaoh that right up front, Exodus 4.22, this is an important verse, Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son. Therefore, let my son go, that he may serve me. Over and over again, Moses kept saying, let my people go. Why? So that they may serve me. Exodus 8.1, 8.20, 9, 10.3. 9, so God saved Israel not just to be free from slavery, but to be free to serve him. What does it look like to serve God? Well, it looks like trusting God's provision, even in the midst of trials and temptation. That's number four, temptation in the wilderness, because Exodus 1.1 to 15.21 is all about the reality that God is a God who saves. Then the second half of Exodus highlights that God is a God who sanctifies. So creating a people who trust God's provision, obey God's law, and dwell in God's presence. So there are people who trust him. But unfortunately, as you know, that's not what Israel does. Instead, what do they do? They grumble. They grumble when there's no water. They grumble when there's no food, no bread. And then they grumble again when there's no water. They grumble three times. No water, no bread, no water. I want to highlight three things. We're just taking information with us. It's going to end up landing in Matthew. Three things I want to highlight. They're grumbling. Yeah, you pointed that out, Steve. I got it. They're grumbling. No, they're grumbling, but they're not just grumbling against Moses. They're grumbling against God. So if you would flip to 16.8, the the text is very clear, purposeful, helpful. Exodus 16.8, and when Moses Said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against Him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So they're grumbling against God. Number two, they're going to be tempted and grumbling for 40 years. Now that 40 years doesn't all take place in the book of Exodus, and yet Exodus highlights the 40 years. Look at Exodus 16.35. It says, because the people ate manna for 40 years until they came to the land of Canaan. So temptation in the wilderness for 40 long, painful years. Number three, I know I'm highlighting Moses' life, but you have to see that Jesus is not just the greater than Moses. He's also the one true Israelite because he's God's ultimate firstborn son who wholeheartedly trusts God's provision. That's going to get highlighted just as soon as we get to Matthew's gospel. We'll get there in a moment. First, number five, commands from the mountain. What happens as soon as we're done with temptation in the wilderness? We move on to creating a people who obey God's law, which means Moses heads up the mountain. Look at Exodus 19, verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Now, be clear here, because Moses does go up on top of the mountain, but God is the one who ultimately declares the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So God declares the Ten Commandments, and yet... Moses is the mediator who brings those Ten Commandments to the people. That, of course, takes us all the way through the plans for the tabernacle, chapters 25, 26, 27, the instruction for the priests, 28, 29, 30, and brings us to Exodus 32 where the people break God's command, a golden calf, and worship it instead of Yahweh, which highlights our ongoing desperate need for a substitute who actually does keep God's commandments and our ongoing desperate need for a mediator to intercede on behalf of sinful people, to plead with God, to stand in the gap, so that God can be exactly who God declares himself to be. Look at Exodus 34, verse 6. So Moses clearly stands not only as a great prophet declaring the word of God to the people of God, but he stands as a great mediator because he's the one who intercedes on behalf of the people. He's the one who pleads with God to be gracious and kind, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, which he does in Exodus. And God relents and he restores his people. How does he do that? Through Moses, the great prophet and the great mediator. And as a result, Moses has, number six, great fame among the people. Look at Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Verse 32, afterward, all the people of Israel came near. And he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken at Mount Sinai. So Moses' face is shining like the sun. And he finds great favor among all the people. So Israel is forgiven. God's covenants restored. And the people immediately start working on the tabernacle. How is that all possible? Well, that's be Moses' ministry. So it's all because Moses is a great prophet and a great mediator. That's highlighted all the way through the book of Exodus. But what's the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal, as we heard last week, is so that God can dwell in their presence. So he can be their God and they can be his people. The absolute splendor of the Shekinah glory dwelling in the tabernacle. If you will flip forward to Exodus 40. I just want you to highlight. See, we're ready at Exodus 40. Are we not moving quickly? Look at that. Summary of Exodus, 20 minutes, boom. It's just good stuff. That's all I'm telling you. All right, Exodus 40, verse 34. This is incredible. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is the whole point. This is why he raised up a mediator in Moses so that the glory of God could fill the tabernacle. And yet we're told, verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, isn't that incredible? And yet fascinating at the same time. So so first the glory, that God actually dwells with his people. So, So God descends in all of his glory and he fills the entire tabernacle. Which by the way is just a foretaste of when the Lord Jesus will come. The radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and how he will uphold the entire universe by the word of his power. So the reality that Jesus is the word made flesh who dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, living among us in our presence, God with us, all to ultimately fulfill God's promise that he will be our God and we will be his people. You know, I really don't think that we comprehend the glory of the Shekinah glory filling the temple. And I know we don't understand or comprehend the glory of the incarnation. That God became man and dwelt among us. And yet we get this detail here. Verse 34. How Moses is not able to enter the tent of meeting. Isn't that fascinating? Because he certainly was before Right, right earlier, he was able to enter the tent of meeting. That's why his face was shining. So why not now? How do we explain that? Well, I think God set it up that way. So that we might see Moses as a glorious type of Christ. Because he certainly was a great prophet and he certainly was a great mediator. And yet when God in all of his glory descends on the tabernacle, Moses isn't able to enter. He's not able to stand fully, if you will, in God's presence. Why is that? Well, because Moses is not Jesus. So he's a great prophet and he's a great mediator, but he's not the ultimate prophet and he's not the ultimate mediator. And he's certainly not God himself. That's Jesus, not Moses. So if you would, let's take all that we've learned from Moses' life and Moses' ministry and let's take it as we flip forward to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to see how Matthew so purposely and so specifically in all of his details highlights how Jesus really is the greater than Moses. Matthew chapter 1, page 807. Matthew chapter 1. So here's my point, so you don't miss what I'm doing. I'm trying to tell you that God orchestrated all of history, set up the entire book of Exodus. God orchestrates all of history, sets up the Gospel of Matthew so that Matthew mirrors Exodus. So that in all of the contours, and all of the details, you might know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the greater God than Moses. All purposeful. What's the first thing that you see when you hit the gospel of Matthew? The genealogy. See, the genealogy of Jesus, which which is what? It's the birth of Jesus. Summarized in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So a fascinating birth narrative is how Matthew starts, just like how Exodus starts. That includes, notice, verse 21. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, Jesus, unique birth narrative in order to save God's people. And here's a question. Specifically, as you compare the birth of Jesus to the birth of Moses, is Jesus born in peaceful times when all is well and the world is as it should be? No, of course not. Jesus is born in the midst of a wicked king, King Herod, who's trying to kill him, just like Moses. Number one, birth in the midst of a wicked king. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter two, verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. It's really strange to be reading this when it's hot and humid outside rather than cold, right? You read this usually at Christmas. Okay, just me. All right. Verse 2, where he who has been born king of the Jews, for he saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Verse 5, they told him Bethlehem. Skip down to verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Yeah, right. Because that's not what happens. Herod has no intentions of worshiping King Jesus. Instead, he wants to kill King Jesus. And yet... What does Matthew highlight before we get that detail? He highlights that Joseph and Mary flee and take Jesus where? To Egypt. Chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Why is that so important? Well, first of all, you have to go down to Egypt in order to come out of Egypt. But even more important than that, look at verse 15. Verse 15 tells us that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. God is orchestrating all of these details to match the Exodus narrative. And he's orchestrating all these details to highlight for us that Jesus is the greater than Moses and Jesus is the one true Israelite. All the details so that you can be absolutely sure that that is true. Number one, birth in the midst of a wicked king. Verse 16 tells us, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children. Not the girls, just the boys. Killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Jesus is born in the midst of a wicked king who's trying to kill him, just like Moses. But God protects him, and God prepares him in Egypt. Protects him and prepares him for what? To free God's people from their enslavement to sin. And to take them all the way home, salvation in God's presence, in the promised land of heaven. Number two, out of Egypt. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord peered in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child, take Jesus and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. So out of Egypt, heading to the promised land, for those who sought his life are dead. What happens immediately after they come out of Egypt? That's right. He goes through the waters of baptism. So just like Moses, birthed in the midst of a wicked king, protected and prepared, taken out of Egypt immediately through the waters. For Moses, the waters of the Red Sea. For Jesus, the waters of baptism. And yet, we get details. Look at what happens. Matthew 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So God declares that this is my beloved Son. So God the Father declares that this is God the Son, and therefore, by definition, must be greater than Moses. But do you know what else God says specifically the next time that he declares, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased? Matthew 17, verse 5. He says, listen to him. And that's right. We should listen to him. Because Jesus is the greater than Moses, which means Jesus is the prophet promised from all the way back in Deuteronomy 18. So we're on quite a roll, aren't we? Yet the roll continues. Because what happens after the waters of baptism? Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Number four, chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting, notice, 40 days and 40 nights. So not 40 years, but 40 days. What else? The text says, look at your Bible. He was hungry. (laughs) And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become what? Loaves of bread. Okay, bread in the wilderness when you're hungry. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And yet, what does Jesus do? Does he grumble? No. He answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want you to pause and think about that for just a moment. Because the devil's clearly tempting Jesus. But how is he specifically tempting Jesus? He's tempting Jesus to not trust God's provision. Specifically, when there's no food, no bread. So, three temptations of Jesus, just like three temptations of the Israelites in Exodus. And where they clearly failed, grumbling, 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 Jesus prevails. Because he wholeheartedly, without reservation, trusts God's provision. Which demonstrates not only that Jesus is greater than Moses, but that he's the one true Israelite who perfectly keeps God's commands which makes him an adequate substitute for our sin. Forty days rather than 40 years. He's the one true Israelite, yet he's without sin. Okay, let's press on. Number five, great fame among the people. Soon as the devil departs, Jesus immediately begins his earthly ministry. Verse 17 tells us from that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, why is the kingdom at hand? Because the king is at hand. So, Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And how do things go for Jesus according to Matthew? Well, verse 23 says, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Verse 24, so his fame spread throughout all Syria. It says, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So just like Moses, Jesus was born in the midst of a wicked king, came out of Egypt, went through the waters, and experienced temptation in the wilderness. And just like Moses, Matthew 17, incredible connection during the transfiguration. Matthew tells us, 17, 2, says, Jesus' face shone like the sun. And again, that's where God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus has great fame among the people. Jesus' face even shines like the sun. Jesus is the greater than Moses. But if you're still not convinced that Jesus really is the greater than Moses, just look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Matthew 5, verse 1. So that means, right? So just pause. That means chapter 1 to chapter 4, right? Because we're at chapter 5, verse 1. I'm trying to tell you all of these details are in the first four chapters of Matthew. All of the details lined up so that you already know Jesus is the greater than Moses. And yet, the detail of chapter 5, verse 1. Look at what it says. Seeing the crowds, Jesus goes where? Up on the mountain. Up on the mountain like who? Up on the mountain like Moses. What does he do up on the mountain? He begins to teach. The Sermon on the Mount is the first teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And what does he teach? Verse 17 Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, does the commandments and teaches them, teaches the commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes up on the mountain and he starts fulfilling the law. How does he fulfill the law? By unpacking the full meaning of the law. So he fulfills the law both in his teaching and in his living, meaning he will fulfill the law both in his life and in his death. But Jesus is the greater than Moses. That's why he says, look at verse 21. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, look at verse 27, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, look at verse 33, you've heard that it was said you shall not bear false witness, but I say to you, what are all of those? Those are the Ten Commandments, specifically Commandments 6, 7, and 9. And who said them? Who spoke the Ten Commandments? Well, Moses surely did, right? He was the great prophet. He spoke on behalf of the people. He brought the Ten Commandments. He brought the covenant to the people. But who ultimately spoke the Ten Commandments? God did. That's exactly right. So Jesus is the greater than Moses because Jesus is God. Jesus is greater in every imaginable way. He's a greater prophet, mediator, and king. That's B, Jesus' ministry. Because number one, Jesus is the greater than Moses king. Now, you might say that's an easy one, Steve. You're, you're, You're cherry picking here, right? Because Moses wasn't even a king. You'd be absolutely right. But Jesus didn't come just to fulfill the book of Exodus. He came to fulfill all the scripture, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's why he says in Matthew 4, 17, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Because the king is at hand. And what does he say if we're listening to him? He says, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is the one true king of an eternal kingdom. That's why he speaks with such authority. In fact, we're going to see that in spades in the Sermon on the Mount. If you would flip to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verses 28 to 29. He says... And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why were they astonished at his teaching? Because he was teaching with such authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And oh, by the way, how does the book of Matthew end? With King Jesus declaring that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them what? all that I commanded. Jesus is the greater than Moses king. And Jesus is the greater than Moses mediator because he became like us in every way, yet was without sin. So he can stand in our place, he can die the death we deserve to die, and he can offer us the life that we don't deserve. That's the glory of the gospel that Moses could never do. So yes, Moses could intercede for the people But Moses can never die for the people. That only Jesus does when he dies as a substitute for our sin, like the Passover lamb. That's why Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished, it is done to the world. Salvation comes, hallelujah, he's alive. Hell was silenced when he cried. It is finished. He is the greater than Moses mediator. Now, as we close, I want to link to that reality, number three, that Jesus is the greater than Moses prophet. Remember where we started. Deuteronomy 18, Moses declaring, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, and it is to him that you should listen. How do we know according to Deuteronomy 18 that this prophet is the real deal? Well, we know it because all that he declares comes to pass, right? Everything that he promises will happen, he predicts will happen as the great prophet comes true. Do you realize in the Gospels That Jesus declared three times very clearly, the text says very plainly, that he would die at the hands of wicked men and rise on the third day. Luke 9.22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and that he must be killed. Then Jesus says, And then be raised on the third day. Don't you see the fact that Jesus predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection and it came to pass, it came true, confirms that he is the greater than Moses prophet from Deuteronomy 18. So if you're persuaded that Jesus really is the greater than Moses prophet from Deuteronomy 18, what should we do? We should listen to him. Very simply, that's who he is. Therefore, we should listen. Now, Jesus is going to say some really hard things in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he's going to confront us in every single area of your life. You might be thinking, now I know why you're heading down to Montgomery, Alabama. You're going to get out of here before that happens. Let, let Richie preach those texts. No, he's going to say hard things. Again, remember the question. Who are you listening to? Because Jesus is going to say some hard things. He's going to speak into every single area of your life. He's going to confront us on our anger. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to walk you right through the Sermon on the Mount, right here. Chapter 5, verse 22, he confronts us on our anger. That everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. He's going to confront us on our lust. Chapter 5, verse 28, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. He's going to confront us on our words, our speech. Chapter 5, verse 37, that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. He's going to demand, look at chapter 5, verse 48. This is the demand he's making on our life, that we be perfect just as our heavenly father is perfect. That looks like something. Chapter 6, verse 1, not practicing our righteousness before people in order to be seen by them, but living for an audience of one, namely living for the praise of God, not the praise of men. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Jesus is going to speak into our prayer lives. Jesus is going to talk to us about fasting. Jesus is going to talk to us about money. Your giving. giving what we do with our money, whether we're laying up treasure in heaven or we're consumed with the here and now. Why is he going to do that? Chapter 6, verse 24. Because no one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. No matter what you do, you cannot serve God and money. If you're worried about this whole Sermon on the Mount series... He's also going to confront you on your anxiety, right? He's going to say whether or not you're really trusting in God with your life. Are you seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness or are you trusting yourself? And if you're judging the person who's struggling with anxiety, he's going to confront you on that as well. Take the log out of your own eye. He's also going to confront you on whether or not you're really bearing fruit in keeping with your profession of faith. What's my point with all of this? My point is, Jesus is going to have tons to say about every single area of your life in painful, specific, confronting, and condemning ways. Essentially, he's going to point out all the sin in your life. Here's the question Are you going to listen to him? I mean, I don't know how many other ways God could have possibly demonstrated that all the Bible is all about Jesus, that he's the greater than Moses from Deuteronomy 18, and that salvation and sanctification is only in him. He's laid it out. He tells you directly. He shows you by connecting Exodus to Matthew. You have all the details. He, He couldn't show you in any greater way that Jesus really is the Son of God and that he is the greater than Moses' prophet from Deuteronomy 18. And yet the question remains, in your mind and in your heart, are you actually going to listen to him? It will make all the difference in the world, not only now, but for all eternity. Look at how the Sermon on the Mount ends. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus tells you this little story after he's taught you all of these things and spoken into your life in all the details. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine. Are you listening to Jesus? Every one who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. That's you, dear believer. And that's my appeal to you in this new sermon series. That you would not just be a hearer of the word, but that you would be a doer of the word. That you would take Jesus' words to heart and that you would live them out in every single area of your life, knowing that when life gets hard, when the rain falls and the wind blows and the floods come, that you're listening to him. Your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're trusting in his perfect provision for your life. This is not working for your salvation. This is working out your salvation. Listening to him. Obeying his voice. Knowing that when you do, you have nothing to worry about. Because your life, salvation and sanctification is founded on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He gives you the promise, but then he also gives you the warning. Look at verse 24. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Notice how it's the exact same difficulties of life. But the wise man listens and obey. And the fool blows off the Lord Jesus Christ and does whatever he wants. Dear unbeliever, what else would you want to see? What else would you want to hear? What else do you want the Bible to demonstrate to you? Jesus is the greater than Moses who secured your salvation and Jesus is the greater than Moses prophet who's declaring to you this morning and warning you that you should listen to him. I appeal to you, you have all the evidence you could possibly want to know for certain that Jesus's offer of salvation is legitimate. You just need to take him up on his offer. You need to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You need to repent of your sins. You need to plead for God's mercy and you need to believe in Jesus. And I pray that you would do it today. You know, the Bible never promises you salvation on another day. It says, let today be the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month when you feel like it today. Let today be the day of salvation for you, not tomorrow, today. Believe in Jesus today. Jesus is the greater than Moses in every way, prophet, mediator, and king. By God's grace, may we be a people who wisely reject all the other voices in the world. They are pouring into your life all the time. I pray that we would be smart enough, wise enough to know Those are not the voices we should listen to. Very simply, we need to listen to Jesus. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're so grateful that our faith is not grounded on wishful thinking. Our faith is grounded on the clear teaching of the Word of God that you have declared to us in so many different ways that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the great prophet, priest, and king, that salvation is exclusively only in him. So Father, I pray that we would be those who believe in Jesus, who love Jesus, who listen to Jesus, And obey Jesus' commands. That we would live life in such a way that it would bring glory and honor and praise to your holy name. Because we are longing and looking forward to his return when we will be in his presence for all eternity. Father, do that good work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.